2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. The Bible says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Tonight, I believe those two verses ought to mean everything to you and I. That as we examine life and we look at the situations that we find ourselves in, we have to understand the importance of the Word of God within that life. That we understand that the Bible is not just a book of doctrines. It's not just a book for us to know how to worship God appropriately, but it's a collection of books that tell a story, that tell a story about a fallen race that God created in mankind and God's great love and mercy in seeking to reconcile that relationship. And in that relationship, He offers us answers that aren't just for us to use to win spiritual or debates in a sense of religion, but actually to have a heart that seeks after our God. Life doesn't always turn out the way we plan for it to. And tonight I'm going to talk about a topic that I know is very sensitive. I'm also aware that in some cases can be controversial, can bring up some questions and ideas in our hearts and minds pertaining to um, the idea that we're going to talk about. But in my experience, I believe that it is a topic that we need to make sure that we're open about, that we can actually look at the Word of God to find answers for this common problem that's in our world today and has been in our world from the very beginning. Tonight, I want us to examine a Christian response to depression. You ask me if I believe depression is real. I'm going to tell you yes. And I'm going to tell you yes because of experiences I've had working with other people, but I'm also going to tell you yes because of an experience I've had in my life. And tonight I want to share some things with you that I don't share in an effort to get attention. I don't share in an effort for you to feel sorry for me or to think anything of me. I simply share it as a brother in Christ who hopes that it can help somebody in this audience tonight. At the age of nine years old, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. At nine years old, I was in the fourth grade, and one day my dad and my mom came to the school. They got the school counselor, and they brought her into a room with me, and they pulled me aside and said, we need to talk to you about something. There's a problem. Something's going on with mom. And I said, okay. I was nine years old. My dad said, mom's sick. And I said, well, let's go to the doctor. Let's get some medicine, and mom will be fine. They said, well, it's not that type of sick. She's actually got something called cancer. Now understand, this was 1989, so cancer research and treatment was far different in 89 than it is even today. And hearing that word cancer at nine years old, I didn't really know anything about that, but I knew it wasn't good. 
So for the next two years, she went through treatments of chemotherapy and radiation, and she was in remission. And we thought everything was fine. Mom had been healed, and we would continue on with life. My mom, my dad, and I. But a year later, she was re-diagnosed, and they performed some surgeries and did more treatments. And through those treatments, I watched my mom's body deteriorate. At 12 years old, I remember riding with her from Roy City to downtown Dallas to Baylor Medical Center to receive those treatments, and she would be hooked up to a machine for hours receiving these treatments. And then she and I would drive back that 40-mile trip to Roy City, and she would stop every seven, eight miles on the side of the road and throw up because of what that was doing to her body. She ultimately was in remission a second time. And we thought, great, mom's going to be okay. But the cancer returned. Mom was re-diagnosed. And ultimately the doctor said, now there's really not much we can do. It's in her bones, it's in her liver, it's in all her major organs. All we can do is try to keep her comfortable. I was a freshman in high school. I was 15 years old, and my mom spent the last six months of her life in a hospital in Dallas, Texas. And I would go that spring, and I would sit by her bedside in that hospital, and I would talk to her and try to spend any amount of time that I could, but I never really accepted the fact that mom was going to die. I would talk to mom about my desire to sit there with her and she would express her desire for me to go on and live my life. She said, you go play ball, you go enjoy life, you do all the things that you need to do, I'm, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about me. I tried to do that. And we would go play baseball games and then as soon as that game was over, I would rush to the hospital and I'd sit with my mom till 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock in the morning by her bedside watching her body continue to deteriorate. Finally, one day, my dad came up to the school and got the counselor again and pulled me into a little room and he said, I need to talk to you about mom. And he said, mom's gone. And I said, no, mom's going to be okay. And he said, no, mom's dead. I didn't know it at the time, but that was a pivotal point in my existence. Because that point in my life, I didn't know God, I hadn't searched for God, I hadn't studied or heard much about God, I had some general idea that there was a God, but I didn't know anything about Him. But hearing that proclamation that my mom's life was over, it caused me to experience a lot of emotions toward God. Toward a being that I didn't know, toward a being I had never sought out, toward a being that I didn't understand. And I was angry. I was bitter. And I asked my dad, I said, well, were you with her when she died? And he said, I was right there. And I said, why wasn't I there? 
And he said, well, mom wanted you to live. Mom wanted you to go on and just live your life. And I said, I wanted to be with her. And I said, it's unfair. And I said, how could a God or any being that says he's loving and says he's just do these kind of things to me? And I remember very difficult situations and conversations that I had with people. And I want to tell you, I turned into a different person because of my bitterness and my hate and my grief. And I went from a child, essentially a teenager, that loved playing ball and loved having a good time with his friends and loved school and loved everything really about life to a person that was bitter and hate, hateful to almost anybody that would come in contact with me. My dad called a gentleman from Mesquite, Texas, from a church of Christ. His name was Gerald Hanley. Many of you know Brother Gerald Hanley or knew Brother Gerald Hanley. And Brother Gerald started coming out to our house and visiting with Dad. And Dad started having Bible studies and conversations. And I would sit there in my room and hear what was going on in the living room. And guess what? The bitterness, the anger, the frustration just continued to grow in my heart. He got in touch with an evangelist to preach my mom's funeral. His name was Michael McCorkle. Michael McCorkle came to my house at that time and he sat down with me in our living room and he said, is there anything that you would like for me to say about your mother? And I said, I don't want you to say a word because you don't know her and you don't know me. And I want to tell you, after those conversations, there's about a three-month span of my life that's very blurry in my mind. There's a lot of details that are very sketchy about that point in my life because I was confused, hurt, and angry. But I want to tell you something my dad did that I'm thankful to this day that he did. From that point, every Sunday morning, guess what he did? He got up, he fixed a little two-year-old girl's hair, put her in a dress, got her in a pickup, and drove her to church. They would come home in the afternoon, and I would still be there. And we would eat lunch together, and we'd visit, and he'd try to tell me about what he learned that morning at church and what was going on with the church, and I said, Dad, I really don't want to hear it. And if that's what you're going to do, that's fine. But don't tell me what I have to do. That evening, every Sunday evening, guess what he did? He fixed that little two-year-old girl's hair. He put a dress back on her and they went back to church. Every Wednesday night, he put her in a dress and fixed her hair and took her to church. All the while, I was sitting alone in my bedroom, bitter, frustrated, and hating God hating my existence, wanting nothing more than just to escape by any means necessary, the pain and the hurt that I was experiencing. I don't know where my life would be today if my dad hadn't made the change he made. But I can tell you where I wouldn't be. I probably wouldn't be in Plainview, Texas 
preaching a gospel meeting, I probably wouldn't even be in the Lord's church today. You see, we all have plans in life. We kind of have expectations of how our life's going to go. And I had visions of graduating high school and my mom and dad being there in that audience and seeing me walk across that stage. I had visions of meeting a woman at some point that I would ask to be my wife and my mom and my dad being present, sitting on a pew in a church building or some type of auditorium, watching me exchange vows with this woman that I want to spend the rest of my life with. I had visions of my mom and dad holding my children as their grandchildren. And we all kind of have these expectations of what we want in life and what's going to happen. And the truth is, doesn't always work out that way, does it? I didn't know at the time that I was depressed. I didn't know at the time that I was suffering emotionally and I needed to reach out for help. But I want to tell you, I can look back with the training that I've received, the education that I've received, the experience that I have now, and I can tell you honestly, I was depressed. I had emotions that I didn't know how to handle and what to do with. But I want to tell you what made the difference in my life. It wasn't going to a psychiatrist or a physician. It was my dad leading me to Jesus Christ. And finding a support group in God's people that I could lean upon. Finding brothers and sisters in Christ who would be there to weep with me that at the time I didn't understand even existed. I was very cynical toward people. And I said, the only reason you care about me is because my mom's dead. <laughs> what good is that for me? And I'll tell you, it allowed my mind to go to a lot of dark places. Tonight, I don't know what you're experiencing. I don't know what you've endured in your life, but my guess is you have experienced grief, you've experienced tragedy, you've experienced heartache. And what I want to do this evening is look at the Word of God because I believe it has the answers to life. I believe it has instruction for us. If we'll implement these things into our life, we can better understand what life really is about. And that when these times come, we're prepared for those things. Not that we don't feel sadness, not that we don't experience grief, not that we don't feel loss and pain and suffering and all those things, but we understand it's a part of the experience of living. And in that context, we will have a greater respect and reverence for our Creator, that we don't lay accusations at His feet that are not His fault. I want to tell you, I believe this, that God did not take my mother... My mother died because of a horrible disease that is a result of sin that came into this world when Adam and Eve gave in to that temptation and opened the doors to sin and death. But I also know that even through the most horrible tragedy, God can work. And God can make a difference. See, all of us experience stress in life. All of us struggle with these things that are listed there on that slide. There's life, there's burnout, there's depression, there's sadness. I want to tell you, when you stay in that depressed state, your mind begins to work differently. And your brain doesn't work the same way that it did before. And if we're not careful about those things, we can be so overwhelmed with our grief that it turns us into a different person. 
Proverbs 18 and 14 says it this way. It says, The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear? It's saying the physical infirmities of life, you know, sometimes our mentality, our spirit can overcome those things. And even though we suffer physically, we can overcome that by the spirit. He said, but if our spirit is weakened, our spirit is sick, that's tough to bear, isn't it? James chapter 4 and verse 12 says, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Life is precious. And life is fleeting. And I don't know what plans you have for your life, but I want you to understand something. There may be different plans out there for you. There's one lawgiver. There's one who's able to save. There's one who's able to destroy. And all those accusations that I hurled toward God and my hatred and bitterness toward Him, if I would have simply turned to Him and said, Lord, help me, save me, provide for me, comfort me, guess who would have been there? I believe He was there all along even when I wasn't looking for Him. I believe He was there waiting on me to turn my heart and my life to Him. What is stress? Stress is defined as the application of sufficient force to an object to distort it, and it is a reality of the life experience. Stress contributes to 90% of all diseases. Heart disease, cancer, gastrointestinal issues, stroke, etc., Many of these, a contributing factor to these is stress and the overwhelming circumstances of our life and the way that we handle these types of situations. Stress can lead us to irrational thoughts and fears. It can make us fear things and think things that really aren't true and it distorts our mind if we let it. Most stress reaction is due to a perceived lack of control. I believe the Bible talks about many individuals that experienced a tremendous amount of stress that caused them to fall into what we would term or define as depression. Now tonight I want you to understand, I do not discount an organic issue in the brain that causes irrational thoughts and irrational moods. I, I believe that is valid. But I also believe that a lot of times we look for worldly answers to these problems first instead of using all the tools that God's Word gives to us to try to combat these emotions and these irrational thoughts. And if we would do that first, then we might see better results when we're dealing with these emotions and feelings of depression. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 7 describes Saul. As David is beginning to gain notoriety in the kingdom and Saul feels threatened, look at what happens in Saul's mind because of this perceived lack of control or loss of control and power. He says, And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. You see, this threat to Saul's control and his power, which wasn't David's fault, whose fault was it? It was Saul's fault, right? Because remember what God had commanded Saul to do? He told him to go and to utterly destroy the Amalekites. 
Saul disobeyed God and kept back the king and a portion of the flocks to offer and sacrifice to God. He was disobedient to the will of God and the prophet of God proclaimed to him that his kingdom would be taken from him. You see, Saul had feelings of guilt because of his choices and his decisions and now David is simply being a servant of God. David is fulfilling what God has planned for him and serving and doing exactly what he needs to do. And in doing that, Saul feels threatened. And he says, what else can David have but the kingdom? He's coming after me. And then how many times throughout this chasing of David by Saul, pursuing him, trying to kill him, do we see David with the opportunity to take the kingdom? How many times do we see David with an easy opportunity to do what he wanted to do with Saul and take the kingdom, but David said what? It's not my job. He's the, king's, he's the Lord's anointed. God will handle that when it's his time. But what was Saul's perception? You see, Saul's perception because of what? His fear, his anger, somewhat of a depressed thought caused him to think irrationally about David. And you read through the rest of that story, Saul has a very horrible, persecuted existence, really, for the rest of his life. And ultimately takes his own life. But it all started because of his disobedience to God. See, sometimes a contributing factor to depression and the things that we suffer are the decisions we make. Now, I didn't make a decision to lose my mother, and we don't make decisions to lose loved ones, and those are real tragic circumstances, but a lot of times we feel shame and regret and depressed feelings because we've made mistakes, and we've not properly handled those sins, and we've not turned those sins over to the blood of Christ for Him to forgive and cleanse and make whole. Saul could have repented. Saul didn't have to have a persecuted existence for the rest of his life. You see, there's kind of a consistent process when we're dealing with depression. First of all, there's some circumstance or situation that is so overwhelming that we want to shut down and alter our functioning as a human being. Then what we begin to do is we begin to depersonalize and we begin to almost withdraw from people and places that at one time would have been places of comfort for us. And we begin to treat other people in a very impersonal manner. And that detachment continues to occur and we withdraw from things that are our responsibilities. And sometimes that depression can become so severe that we can't even get out of bed in the morning. And a lot of times people look at that and they say, just get up and go do something, but I want you to understand those feelings and emotions are real and the person feels like they can't do that. I know they can, but in their heart and mind, they really feel like they can't. And when we get to that point, we start shutting down, we stop operating, we stop doing the things that we know are right, and we feel defeated by life. Have you ever felt beaten down by life? How many of you have felt beaten down by life? I want to tell you, I can look back and see a lot of blessings in my life, but there are points in my life where I feel like, you know what, I just feel beaten down. I feel like I want to quit and give up. You know, a prophet of God felt that way. A man who was inspired and heard the voice of God had those very emotions. His name was Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 7, the Bible says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. 
Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. You think about the depression and the feelings that this man Jeremiah is experiencing. He's preaching the word of God. He's a prophet that the Lord has chosen. And the Lord told him, you go and you speak this message. You're my mouthpiece to my people. This is your responsibility. And Jeremiah did that faithfully. But guess what? People didn't listen. People mocked, people ridiculed, people laughed him to scorn. Nobody wanted to hear what God had to say to them. And Jeremiah reached a point that he said, I'm done. (laughs) I just want to give up. I'm not going to speak in your name anymore, Lord. Jeremiah was beaten down because of the circumstances of his life and his existence. Tonight, I want you to understand Those feelings and emotions aren't necessarily wrong or sinful. But if those emotions and feelings aren't handled properly, it can lead us into a lot of sinful behavior. But tonight I believe God's Word has the answer. Jeremiah continues on there in chapter 20 and he gets worse and worse. Not only did he tell God he was done preaching his word, he said, Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bare me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not, and let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide, because he slew me not from the womb, or that my mother might have been my grave and her womb to be always great with me. Most of us probably haven't felt that bad. But there may be some in this audience who have. Who honestly have looked at their life and a stage of life that they're in and said it would be better if I had never been born. Let me remind you of something tonight. God created you for a purpose. God's Word says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have a Creator who puts you on this earth to bring glory and honor to His name. He puts you here to seek after Him and to have a relationship with Him so that you could know Him in this life and that in the life to come, He might be able to be with you for eternity. And anything we suffer in this life is just temporary. It's just for a time because we have a great promise. A promise of God that we can hold tight to. But if you've had these feelings or thoughts about your life, I want to urge you find a leader in the Lord's church and talk to them about that. Let them open up the Word of God and study with you the importance of how you feel about your relationship toward your Creator to help remind you that you are loved and you have a group of people who love you, who want nothing but good for you, and most importantly, you have a Heavenly Father who wants good for you in your life. And be reminded of that. See, oftentimes, depression comes about because of a problem with self. We talked a little bit last night about our culture's 
love affair with self and some of the behaviors that we observe that lead to deep-seated issues regarding our life and our existence. Look at what Jeremiah says there in chapter 17 and verse 18. He says, Let them be confounded that persecute me, but let not me be confounded. Let them be dismayed, but let not me be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. <laughs> what was Jeremiah wanting? Probably the same thing Jonah wanted as he went and preached that message of repentance to Nineveh. All the while Jonah's preaching that message of repentance, what did Jonah really want? He wanted them to be destroyed. That's what God said was going to happen. And he went through that city preaching that message after his events and all the things that had happened to him in his life and his repentance and returning to God. He goes and he preaches that message fully expecting that they would be destroyed. But they repented. And then he was bitter toward God. And he suffered and he struggled. Well, what's Jeremiah wanting here? He's saying, destroy all these people who are ridiculing me and not listening to me with double destruction. See, he thought seeing other people destroyed would bring about his joy and happiness. And a lot of times when we struggle with depression, guess what we want? We want other people to be just as unhappy as we are, and we think somehow that's going to make us feel better. That's a trap. And Jeremiah had fallen into that. Later in chapter 20 and verse 12, he says, But, O Lord of hosts, that triest the righteous and seest the reins in the hearts, let me see thy vengeance on them. For unto thee have I opened my cause. He said, God, I've opened myself up to you. You know these people's hearts. You know they're rebellious. Here's what I want. I want to witness their destruction. How irrational is that? That this prophet of God looked at the people that he was preaching a message to in order to try to save them, and he says, destroy them. And let me see that destruction because it would justify me and make me feel better about myself and my circumstances and my life. You know what Jeremiah had forgotten? He had forgotten that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Because God's desire is that the wicked turn from their wickedness and their evil ways and that they return to God. But you see where Jeremiah's focus on himself had distorted his view of not only himself and his relationship with the people, but it distorted his view of God, didn't it? He had turned God into an evil master who was going to come down and punish these people and he was ready to witness it. And that's what he longed for and that's what he desired because he wanted those people to suffer the way he suffered. And God said, that's not the point of all this. The point of this is that they would repent and they would change and they would return to me. Psalm 32 and verse 1 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. 
I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. David struggled with the reality of his separation from God because of his sin. And I want you to look at Psalm 42 tonight. I'm not going to read that entire psalm, but I want to read a few verses to give you some understanding of what David was experiencing through this process of admitting and acknowledging his sin and where he stood with God and the emotional distress that it caused in his life. Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1, he says, As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore I will remember thee from the land of Jordan, of the Hermonites, and from the hill of Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night his song shall be with me and my prayer unto God of my life. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me while they say daily unto me, where is thy God? And then verse 11, as he concludes this psalm, he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. David came to the right conclusion, but it was a struggle for him to get there. He experienced the gravity of his sin weighing down upon him. And he says his bones waxed within him. He struggled. He physically felt the pain and the despair of the choices and the decisions that he had made. And that sin was weighing on his heart. And what he had to come to an understanding of is he couldn't fix it. And he said, oh, my soul, why are you cast down? And ultimately, he comes to the conclusion, hope in God. There's the answer. And then we read that psalm that we read in Psalm 32 and verse 1. It says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You see, he realized that he could return to God through repentance, and he could be restored. But understand, he still suffered the consequences of those choices. But the most important thing that he could possibly have, he had again. And that was his relationship with God. Was there chaos in his home from that day forward? Was there suffering that took place? Did he lose a child? Was losing that child a direct result of his sin and what he had done? That was part of God's judgment placed upon him. Could you imagine David throughout the rest of his life as he laid his head on his pillow at night and he thought about that innocent child that died because of the decisions he made? You know, if anybody could have lived a tortured and persecuted existence, it could have been David. But you know what David did? He hoped in God. 
He got up when that child died. He washed himself. He put on new, clean clothing. And he went and he ate and he worshipped God. And that seemed strange to the people around him, didn't it? But what was his statement? He said, that child's not coming back to me. But I will go to him. You see, there's always hope in God even when the most tragic circumstances strike our life. When my mom died, I didn't know God, I didn't understand God, but you know what I could have had? I could have had hope in God. And through the decisions of other people, my life was very blessed. But at some point, I had to turn my heart to God and acknowledge God to God that I was sinful, I had messed up, and there was nothing that I could do about it except repent and ask for the forgiveness through the blood of His Son. And God was faithful to grant that, and I'm confident in that forgiveness. Just as powerful as David's forgiveness was, your forgiveness and my forgiveness can be tonight. How common is depression? 14.8 million Americans are diagnosed with depression each year. That's about 6.7% of the population. And this is actually those who have gone and received a diagnosis of depression. So you can imagine what those numbers really are. The median age of onset is 32 and a half years of age. One in four American pastors acknowledge a struggle with depression. And I thought that was quite telling. Because a lot of times we look at our leaders in the church and we think that they're immune from struggles and difficulties. But I want you to understand there's a lot of stress involved in leading God's people. It's a responsibility that these men and women take seriously and it can have an effect on us. And we would be wise to consider that and be aware of those situations and circumstances. You see, when talking about depression, we must have some type of definition that we are able to establish. The field of psychiatry uses what's called the DSM-5. That's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it's the fifth edition. And that's their authority when diagnosing all identified mental disorders. These symptoms are commonly observed in individuals who receive a diagnosis of a mental illness, but we must remember that as with all mental illness diagnoses, psychiatrists must utilize signs and reported symptoms to make a diagnosis. It's not a blood test. It's not like a lot of other diseases that you can go and be diagnosed with because of some scan. It's all because of what you report to your doctor. And that doctor then makes their best clinical guess at that time based upon what you report of what that disorder might be. And their first protocol, I want to tell you, is going to be to prescribe some type of medication. Tonight, if you are taking these medications, I'm not telling you to get off of those medications. That is not my advice. But my advice is before we go seeking the wisdom and counsel of doctors in the world to get those type of answers, it would be wise to consider spiritual help and guidance from a counselor or a leader in the church that could help us overcome these through the Word of God. 
And if there are some chemical problems or issues, then certainly the medications can help to stabilize to a point that our minds begin to clear up and we can begin to understand some things that would help us in our life. My experience at a mental hospital that's run by the state of Texas, I was able to witness individuals who came in and they were on all types of medications. And they had been on medications for years and probably be on medications for the rest of their lives. And that was necessary for their brain to work and function at that point. But I also saw other people who came in in a very acute state, suffering from depression. And the doctors would put them on a very low dosage of antidepressant medication and they would start to get what? Counseling and therapy. And part of that counseling and therapy when it involved myself was Bible study. And my role as a counselor at that hospital was to teach people the Word of God and equip them with the answers from the Word of God that would encourage them to make positive changes, not only about the behaviors that they were participating in, but in the way that they thought about life. And I saw individuals who would get off of the medications and would progress and they would be released from the hospital and they would go and they would enjoy life. Does that mean depression wouldn't come back? No, but I believe when it did, they would be equipped to handle those things much better than they were before. You see, the diagnosis for depression is received when an individual has at least five of these nine symptoms below for the same two-week period and experiences those symptoms almost every day or at least part of their day. A depressed mood for children and adolescents, this may be an irritable mood. A significantly reduced level of interest or pleasure in most or all activities. A considerable loss or gain of weight. This may also be an increase or decrease in appetite for children. They may not gain or an expected amount of weight in a given time. You may have difficulty falling or staying asleep, sleeping more than usual, behavior that is agitated or slowed down, feeling fatigued or diminished energy, thoughts of worthlessness or extreme guilt, a lack of ability to think, concentrate, or make decisions. It's reduced. Frequent thoughts of death or suicide without a specific plan or attempt of suicide. The person's symptoms are caused when great distress or difficulty in functioning at home, work, or other important areas. The person's symptoms are not caused by substance use or misuse or abuse. And the person's symptoms are not due to normal grief or bereavement over the death of a loved one. They continue for more than two months or they include great difficulty in functioning, frequent thoughts of worthlessness, thoughts of suicide, symptoms that are psychotic, or behavior that is slowed down, psychomotor retardation. You go look at the DSM-5, that's the list of symptoms that a person that's clinically depressed is going to suffer from. How many of those have you experienced in your life? I want to tell you, there have been times I've had a hard time sleeping at night for days on end. And it's often because of some distress that someone else is experiencing that they've confided in me and I'm trying to help them with that problem and I've overcome with that and it's hard for me to rest my mind. Or it's some guilt that I'm experiencing because of my life and some of the decisions I've made. All of us can relate to some of these symptoms. But I don't believe we're all clinically depressed. And I believe in the Scriptures we have example after example of individuals that today would be identified as clinically depressed. And one of those is Job. When Job began to suffer, not at the hands of God, remember, who was it that persecuted Job? It was Satan. God had confidence in Job, if you remember. 
Because when Satan came to make his accusation before God that people only worshipped and cared about him because he protected them, God's response was, have you considered my servant Job? You see, God looked into Job and saw a heart that desired him, saw a heart that was resilient, and saw a heart that he believed would endure the suffering and tragic circumstances that sometimes happen in life. And early on, what was Job's response in Job's, Job 1, 21 and 22? Job said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job had it right. Job had lost his wife, he had lost his land, he had lost everything. His health was failing, he was in pain and agony, physically and emotionally, every single moment of every single day. And what did Job say? Naked I came, naked I'll go, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the right response to suffering. But you know what happened? Job had some friends. <laughs> It's hard for me to look at these people and say they're friends because they gave him a lot of bad advice. They gave him a, raw, a lot of incorrect instruction about God and about himself. And through that false teaching, what happened to Job's mind? He began to doubt. He began to question. And in Job chapter 30, chapter 30 and verse 16, he says, And now my soul is poured out unto me, the days of affliction have taken hold upon me. My bones are pierced in me in the night season. My sinews take no rest. By the great force of my disease is my garment changed. It bindeth me about as the collar of my coat. He hath cast me into the mire, and I am become like dust and ashes. I cry unto thee, and thou dost not hear me. I stand up, and thou regardest me not. What happened to blessed be the name of the Lord? He got bad advice. The reason I share that and talk about that is sometimes we go to individuals for advice and counsel and information, and guess what? We get bad advice. We get bad information, even from people with a lot of letters after their name. And we go from blessed be the name of the Lord in whatever circumstance I find myself to all of a sudden, you're not even there, God. You're not even listening. You won't stand and give me attention. Where are you? And I want to ask you, when Job was suffering and Job was going through all this and all these conversations and debates were taking place, where was God? He was in the same place he was when he had placed a hedge about him in his life and blessed him with the abundance of the things in this life. God never moved. But Job did. In his heart and his mind. You see, Job's depression was not a chemical issue in his brain. His depression was not caused by his own sin. It was not because of a lack of faith. His depression and suffering was not because God had deserted him. His faith or his depression and his Suffering was circumstantial and it was situational. That's exactly what it was. You know what it was? It was a lesson in life. And you and I would be wise to consider Job and say, all of those tragic things that happened to Job, they can happen to me. Because life happens to all of us. 
And if we're not suffering right now with something, let me encourage you and give you some advice. Prepare today. Because there's going to be something that hits you. And it may rock you to the core of your being. But even if that happens, your response needs to be, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because God is mighty and powerful and will see us through the suffering and the despair of this existence in this life. Very quickly, I want you to just notice some of these thoughts of Job that he experienced through his life. A depressed mood most of the day. He said, my face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. He said, I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. Significant weight loss. He said, he, God has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He had insomnia. He said, when I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. He was fatigued. He said, I've laid my strength in the dust. God has worn me out. Feelings of worthlessness. He said, even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I've loved have turned against me. Was that true? No, but he allowed his mind to go to such an extreme position of depression that that's how he felt and that's what he thought. He had recurrent thoughts of death. He said, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. He said, oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Tonight I want to remind you of something. What I want to remind you of is there are blessings in this life even when we're suffering. But what happens is we get so focused on the suffering that we forget to look around and we forget the good times and the blessings that God's given to us. And I believe Elijah is a perfect example of that. Think of the battles that Elijah had fought through 1 Kings 17 and through 19. He prophesied against Ahab and Jezebel by declaring the drought and what happened? The drought came. God took care of Elijah as they were pursuing him, and he was protected by the brook of Cherith. He was provided bread for himself and for the widow and her son. He ultimately raises that widow's son back to life. He confronts Ahab the king. He challenges the prophets of Baal, and God gives him a very powerful answer. He runs ahead of Ahab to Jezreel. At this point in the story, you'd expect Elijah to be on top of the world. God's preserved, God's protected, God struck down the prophets of Baal and destroyed them. God has vindicated me, He's vindicating His word, and we're standing for the truth. I don't care what Ahab and Jezebel say or what they do, I'm going to serve God. We expect Him to be on top of the world, but guess what happens? Jezebel makes a threat on his life and tells her servants that she wants him dead, and guess what he does? Verse 3 and 4 of chapter 19 there in 1 Kings it says, And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He had seen the miraculous power of the working of God, and now he's sitting there saying, God, just take my life. I can't live any longer. They're coming after me. 
When he should have said, you delivered me once, I'll praise you. You delivered me again, I'll praise you. You delivered me again and again and again. And though they pursue me, Lord, I know you're faithful and you will be there through this distress. But instead, he turned to his own thoughts, his own emotions, his own feelings at that time and became so overwhelmed that he said, Lord, just let me die. Think of all that Elijah had forgotten. I know this is true, how our minds operate. You know how I know it's true? I'll go study with an individual, and sometimes that individual will obey the gospel. I want to tell you, that's the greatest feeling in the world. And you may go study with another individual, and they may obey the gospel. It's the greatest feeling in the world. You're on top of the world. But you go and study with one person and they reject and they choose not to, guess what I'm going to dwell on for the next six, eight, ten weeks of my life? It's not the two people that did obey the gospel that ought to bring me great joy. It's the one that rejected it. And I dwell and I stew and I'm agonized over that person's choice and that person's decision instead of remembering it's God doing the work. It's His Word that's powerful to change the hearts of men. All we have to do is teach. And I forget that, hey, there were two that obeyed the gospel. There were two that were added, but I'm focused on that one that wasn't. That's how our minds work. We focus on the tragedy and we forget the blessings. Tonight, remember the blessings. Remember the triumphs of your life. Remember the times where God was faithful and allowed you to rise above the challenges and the struggles that you were facing. But Elijah did not respond that way. He said, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. But you know what God tells him at that point? He said, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. See, I believe the Word of God has solutions to all these problems, and the first one is this. You need to remember who God is. And tonight, if you're in the midst of some tragedy or trial or suffering, the first thing I want to remind you to do is remember who God is. You see, Job was reminded of who God was, wasn't he? It wasn't very pleasant for Job to experience that, but it was necessary. Because in Job 38 and verse 1, the Lord, as Job is beginning to doubt in his mind and heart toward God, guess what the Lord said? Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. And for the next chapter, what does God do? He proves to Job, remember who I am, Job. I created everything. You weren't here when I did it. So quit questioning. And Job comes to the proper conclusion. He says, I won't question anymore. I'll lay my hand over my mouth. I won't speak again. And then God continues for another chapter to continue to remind him, to put him in that place of humility so that he remembers God's in control. And even in suffering, God's in control. God doesn't cause the suffering, but God is the deliverer through the suffering. Remember who he is. Tonight, remember that life's not about you. Jeremiah 1 verse 7 says, But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Jeremiah was told in the beginning of his ministry he was the mouthpiece of God, and he would go where God commanded him to go. 
But through his life, he got discouraged. He said, I won't speak again of your name. But in chapter 20 and verse 9, listen to what Jeremiah says. He said, but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was, very, I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. He understood the mission that he had was greater than any suffering he might be enduring. And though no one would listen, guess what? He couldn't help but teach the message that God had commanded him to go teach. Tonight, if you're suffering, you're in a tragic situation, guess what? Be about the Father's business. Be busy serving others. Be busy teaching others. Be busy being an example to others. And glorify God in your life every single day. Thirdly, lean on the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. You see, when you're suffering, you're not alone. You know what I learned when I was 16 years old? The first time I walked into a Church of Christ building in Mesquite, Texas, almost a year, year and a half after my mom passed away, as my dad faithfully attended every single service, you know what I learned the first time I walked in there? Is that there was a group of people who were there to love me and support me. Because you know what I saw? I saw my name on a prayer list. I know sometimes we think prayer lists aren't that big a deal, but I want to tell you, when I walked through that, those doors and I saw my name and I said, Dad, why are they praying for me? And he said, because I wanted to see you walk in this building at some point. And those people embraced me. Those people wrapped their arms around me, and I want to tell you, I thought it strange. I didn't understand it. They were calling each other brother and sister and they were hugging each other and telling each other they loved them and I was sitting there, this is the strangest thing I've ever seen. But I'm so thankful I'm a part of that today. Aren't you thankful for the church? Aren't you thankful for brothers and sisters who are there to comfort you in tragic times? But brethren, we can't comfort one another if you don't let us comfort you. We can't help you endure problems and tragedy in life if you don't turn to your brethren. That's what the church is here for. It's the greatest support group on this earth. And it was created by God. Finally this evening, I want you to be reminded that Jesus understands. Your heart may be hurting... You may be feeling despair tonight. I want you to know your Savior understands that. He's experienced loss. He's experienced pain, physical and emotional. Hebrews 4 and 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Do you believe that Jesus understands anything that you could be struggling with? 
The Bible says He can, and He does. Have faith and trust in that, and realize that He's there to help. I love the fulfillment that we see in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is there, and they bring Him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and He turns and He reads a passage from there. And this is the passage that He turns and reads. And as we close this evening, I want you to consider your life. I want you to consider where you stand at this moment in your existence with God. I want you to consider the tragic circumstances that you may be enduring and understand that Jesus will help you. Because what Jesus read out of the book of Isaiah, He says, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted." to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. A few verses down, Jesus says, This is fulfilled this day. Jesus is ready to help you. Jesus is ready to take the pain and bear that with you. I want to tell you, there's still moments in my life where my heart hurts when I think about my mom. But those thoughts and feelings of loss and pain are quickly replaced with thoughts of joy and encouragement because of all the mothers that the Lord provided for me in His church. God will sustain and God will heal. Whatever you have need of this evening, let Jesus take it. Bring it to the cross, leave it there, and walk by faith. And say, blessed be the name of the Lord. If we can help you with a spiritual need, whether through baptism or prayer, anything that you have need of, make that need known by coming and having a seat on the front as together we stand and sing.